कफस उदास है यारों सबास कुछ तो कहो Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS Pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome to the SASPOD Radhika Jain, Asia Health Policy Postdoctoral Fellow at the Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center at Stanford. Her research has focused on healthcare markets, the effectiveness of public health policy, and gender disparities in health. At Shorenstein APARC, Radhika is working on understanding the factors that contribute to poor female health outcomes and interventions to increase the effectiveness of public health insurance. These are some of the topics we will be covering today. Radhika, welcome on the SASPOD. How are you? Uh, hi, thanks. I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be talking to you. Um, healthcare in South Asia, a uh, big topic. <laughs> can, you, can you start us off by just giving us the lay of the land in terms of private and governmental healthcare in India, where, do you, where you do most of your work? Um, sure. So... Um... Well, so India has a large uh, network of public health facilities from sort of uh, small primary health centers that serve clusters of villages, um, you know, up to district level hospitals that provide more uh, complex services. And, you know, there are sort of government rules on there should be at least one health center every X people or one, one hospital in every district in the country. Um, alongside this, you have a, a, a very large private sector, and this is really, a, you know, grown um, a lot over the last two to three decades. And um, I think India is a little unique. This The private sector plays a larger role than many other sort of lower income countries um, and people really use it. So I think, you know, in a recent study, there was something like 90% of all primary care contacts visits were in the private sector and also a substantial share of hospitalizations are in the private sector. So you have these two, you know, um, uh, 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 the public sector and a lot of public policy for a long time focused on the public sector and basically directly providing health services through it. And alongside that, you have um, this, the, the a growing private sector that many people use. So I think many of us think of something different from the reality on the ground in South Asia when we hear private healthcare. Um, can, you, can you just bring some nuance into the terminology? Yeah, it's actually, um, it's funny, you know, when I when I present, um, you know, the, the, my research looking at private hospitals, I usually include photographs to sort of right. fix ideas um, to give people a sense of what I'm talking about. Um, so because there's not a lot of enforcement or, or, you know, of regulations or formal registration, you have a really fragmented private sector with a whole range of providers of varying quality serving different populations. And so, you know, at the sort of lowest level in villages or urban slums, you know, a primary care doctor may be 
literally a person with no medical qualifications sitting in one room and dispensing medicines and advice. And um, from there, you sort of move up to more established clinical practices um, and then some slightly larger facilities that provide you know, a range of services up, up to the very, very large, um, very specialized hospitals. And so, you know, I, I often use the term mom and pop hospital, or I think I've coined the term mom and pop hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't heard anyone else use it. But, um, you know, a lot of the hospitals in, in, for example, the government health insurance program that I study are sort of two to three story apartment buildings, um, you know, have maybe 10 employees and will provide um, just maternal delivery services or, or um, you know, maybe a few, a sort of handful of um, uh, hospital services. So you really have kind of a, um, a, a, a continu continuum of facilities from very, very small to very high and uh, with varying levels of quality that haven't really been measured very well. And, and did you say that somebody could be sitting there with no medical qualifications? Um, yeah, that's actually quite common. Um, you know, the guy, some people refer to them as quacks. Um, I, but, you know, you and I've sat, I've actually gone and sat in the offices of these uh, people like this providers in Delhi slums who they have one room and, um, you know, they may have, oftentimes they've sort of worked with a doctor as, as an assistant or, you know, they worked in a pharmacy or maybe none of that. Um, but, uh, but do dispense medical advice and uh, medicines. Mm -hmm. That's of course not all of the private sector, but that's sure. um, sub a cer certainly a large part of the primary care sector. And I do want to say, I think you know, one of the things, uh, the reason that I was sort of careful about calling them quacks, I, and the reason I don't call them quacks, is mm -hmm. actually there's been a little bit of research, really like looking at the quality of these um, sort of informal providers and comparing them to the quality of. Uh, sort of more officially qualified providers in the public sector. And um, there's surprisingly quite a lot of overlap, not, you know, so in part because public sector um, doctors are not necessarily um, providing the highest quality care. And um, mm. some of these guys, some of these informal providers have learned quite a lot on the job. Uh, yeah. I, that's that's great actually I, I like that you're kind of specifying that or explaining that um so that we don't get stuck in a binary of what's correct and what isn't and um and that's that's good for us to be very mindful of of what that actually looks like on the ground now you also said that um uh that regulation you didn't actually use the word regulation I don't know exactly what you said but that it, they weren't enforced so are these things not regulated or are they technically regulated but they're not enforced yeah um you know I I don't know all of the ins and sure. outs of regulation but um but certainly they are not um strictly enforced in the sense yeah. that there are you know a lot certainly at the primary care level all these um these uh, guys and they really are almost always men um sitting in villages and um and slums and stuff have are not registered in any way with the government um yeah. there's no complete census of healthcare providers but i think even at the hospital level there are many you know or, or establishments that call themselves hospitals but you know these smallish um, two to three story buildings that I'm talking about, you know, not all of them are uh, officially registered with the government um, either. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, now I get very uh, confused when I think about 
uh, health insurance in India. Um, so I know that the Modi government has rolled out an insurance scheme that is meant to provide a kind of universal health care to poor families. Um, and then with that insurance, as I understand it, they can get care in either government or private or public or private facilities. Is, is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the program I study was actually a state program. So before the, the sort of um, national program that the Modi government rolled out, there were many states had their own insurance programs. And okay. I studied the one in Rajasthan. And they're all, they're all sort of similarly designed in that, you know, they target lower low income households, they uh, typically provide, you know, and households are entitled to free care. Um, at all government hospitals and you know uh, impaneled private hospitals and the the size of the private sector depends you know very state to state and the idea is that people get completely free care for sort of pre-specified list of services at these hospitals and so um, when the national modi government's um, program was launched many of these state programs that were already in place got rolled into it okay um and so, all right, we'll get a little bit more about what that actually looks like, but let's talk about your work on, uh, on, on gender. So um, as I understand it, your work focuses specifically on gender imbalance in accessing healthcare. And I'm, I'm guessing the idea is that if healthcare becomes more affordable or in fact, even free, more women will have access to it. Is that a correct assumption? Right. So, yeah, so, 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 you know, um, the insurance program that I um, study, one of its explicit uh, goals is to reduce disparities in healthcare utilization. And just as you said, the assumption behind what is that, you know, by making care free, it will do that. Um, but what we, you know, this is joint work with Pascaline Dupas, who's also at Stanford, um, we find really big gender disparities in utilization of the insurance program, you know, something like, I think it's about 32% of all hospital visits for young children are for girls, you know, so the so almost 70% of the visits are for boys. Mm -hmm. And um, we show that this doesn't decrease over four years of implementation of the program, even though, you know, it, uh, over which period the program expands dramatically, over total utilization is increasing substantially, awareness of the program is increasing, new hospitals are being in included, impaneled. And even so, you know, the gender, even though female and male levels of utilization are in increasing over time, the disparity between males and females does not decrease. Um, and so, and then, you know, in our research, what we try to, we, we sort of get into what's kind of, what's driving this. And we basically find that, um, that gender gender bias within the household is part of what's uh, going on here. So, so essentially, you know, um, care under the program is not in fact completely free. Um, in, in a separate research, we show that hospitals are still charging some amounts for care um, against the program rules. But even besides that, you know, there's um, the travel costs or taking time off from work. And so essentially when you know, we, we show that households, because of this, uh, there is gender bias in households, they are more willing to spend on care for males than for females. And that's part of what's driving this uh, disparity in utilization that we see. Um, and what's, what I thought, what is sort of the next step uh, that's kind of interesting is that we should we look at what happens when you reduce the price of care that households face and you know so I mentioned that hospitals were charging there's this uh, policy that reduce ended up reducing what hospitals charge interestingly we show we find that 
while when so when the cost of care to households decreases both levels of utilization for both males and females increase which makes sense but the gender disparity doesn't decrease in fact it increases and this seems counterintuitive but (laughs) (laughs) okay hang on hang on on. let's just make sure that we're good so so now it's free or almost free and overall access increases so more people go to get healthcare mm-hmm. but the disparity so the the the, the um, percentage of women versus men actually becomes larger so fewer either fewer women go or more men go right so the both more men and women go yes. but more men than you know the the increase yeah. is larger for men exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah. So that is super counterintuitive. Okay, you're going to have to say a lot more about that. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, you know, and this idea has been um, around a little bit, but basically, you know, so if you think about a household that would rather spend its money on uh, males than females, now, you know, maybe maybe one way to think about it is to use a sort of limit case. Imagine where... Um, care is super expensive and nobody can get it. So you have no disparity, neither males nor females are getting any care, right? right. And then when you drop the, if you drop the you know, price of care a little bit, now some households can start taking people and get using that care, but because, you know, in the presence of gender bias, they're more likely to bring their males in for care than, for, than their females in. Right. So what you'll see is, that as you drop the price, the disparity actually widens because from neither males nor females going, getting any care now, um, households are able to bring someone in for care, but they're going to bring their men in much more than their women. And that's sort of the intuition to behind why, we, you know, when you drop prices in some situations, you can actually widen the gender disparity. I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I want to be clear, <laughs> clear that I'm not saying that reducing the cost of care is not worthwhile. And as I pointed out, you know, both levels of utilization for both men and women went up. It's just that, you know, it, in, particularly when there's gender bias and depending on the, um, in some situations, it can, it may not decrease disparities. So something I've never really understood about um, limiting access to healthcare for women is that at the most basic patriarchal level, uh, women produce the next generation of men. So if nothing else, and and I just want to make very clear, this is not my opinion. <laughs> but, you know, patriarchy at its very worst, you'd think would at least invest in the benefit of women, of the healthcare for, of women, just for the sake of that. So why is that not happening? It seems, it doesn't make any sense to me, even if I try and, and kind of get into the mindset of the patriarchy, which is not a place I, I, I like to spend time. Let me... <laughs> clarify that (laughs) (laughs) oh man now you are you're opening up a much larger sort of can of worms um and tones have been written on this and how you know um and 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 you know a bunch of this goes beyond exact you know exactly what health insurance can do but you know there's there's there is um there is research showing that uh, okay, so so one of the reasons why you know uh, households may not want to spend very much on their female children is because women leave the household when they get married. So any investments right. that you make in your girls right. does not end up staying in the household, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's like um, one example. Actually, in our in the the gender imbalance stuff that we see, we find that the big disparities are amongst the children and amongst the elderly, oh. and actually women of childbearing age. Um, 
do use um, do use health the insurance program about as much as men do. I, I, I can't be absolutely certain what's going on behind that, but it would be sort of consistent with this idea that like you know households do care about the mothers and of right. their potential sons. Um, but you know, there's lots of research showing that elderly women's position in the house is very, very uh, tenuous. They are often, they're not contributing financially um, to the household's resources and they, so they, they, they have very low status. So, but, um, but yeah, so. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Okay, so the patriarchy is still protecting itself. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, like I said, it's a, it's a super uh, complicated set of things yeah, that of goes course. into, and you know, and there's, there, I, there's also been research that shows that some of the sort of laws, you know, things like uh, broader systems, things like inheritance laws, um, you know, can also create change the incentives for how much you want to invest in your girls versus your boys. Um, and the government is trying to rectify that. One of the interesting things that um, I didn't mention earlier in our research is so, you know, what, after we show these inequalities and the fact that they get worse when you reduce the cost of care, we also actually looked at the role of, at how exposure to female local leaders um, changes things. So the government of India in the early 90s uh, is, established the system where, you know, a third of all local sort of village level um, political mm-hmm. sort of representatives would be, were required to be female. And um, they, the way they, they sort of, they required that to rotate randomly across villages, which seats were going to be reserved for females. And so lots of studies have looked at the effects of this. And we looked at what it does to female utilization in the insurance and find that, you know, long-term exposure, cumulative exposure over 10 to 15 years to a local female leader does slightly, does reduce disparities, um, does increase the female share of utilization. And so, you know, we can't perfectly disentangle all the mechanisms driving that effect, but it seems to be consistent with this idea that, you know, um, that exposure to, with also with other studies, that exposure to female leaders can, you know, um, both that female leaders may be more likely to invest in health um, and in their villages and awareness about health programs, Mm -hmm. but also that, you know, exposure to female leader changes how women are perceived and valued. There's um, really great research showing this and that like when you have a female leader, you think, you know, people, households invest more in their female uh, girls' education and things like this. And so, you know, I think that kind of like certainly one of the, longer term things that is going to need to happen for gender disparities to go away is going to have to be the, you know, improving the position of women in society, which. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine that's a little bit outside the scope of your work right now. <laughs> no, no, but it's, yeah, <laughs> certainly. I mean, you know, we study it, we show it. Uh, it's certainly uh, a harder thing to, uh, you know, when you're t- talking to government uh, sort of policymakers, um, it's a little harder to start talking about gender bias in this way because they're like, I'm a health person, but tell me what I should do with my insurance program. But right. I do think it's place that what we're showing and which is consistent with many other studies is that this stuff actually uh, makes its way into how effective even health insurance programs are. Now you said earlier that, um, let's see, the, 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 the insurance, the care, um, even with the insurance scheme, is not as free as it's supposed to be. I mean, there's obviously travel costs and everything, but there's also, uh, what did you say? Hospitals are still charging against the rules. Um, mm-hmm. can, can you say a little bit more? It's not, it's, um, yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, 
because we wrote a whole paper, <laughs> a whole paper <laughs> digging into that. <laughs> Tell us more. Um, no, this was um, so so. You know, um, these programs on this happens in a lot of programs. That on paper they say that care is supposed to be totally free, and one of the first things Pascaline and I started doing was literally using the phone numbers and the administrative data of you know of people who have used the program to call them and find out you know. Why, why did you have to pay anything? And we found that they did indeed have to pay substantial amounts. And keep in mind that these are very poor households that um, you know live on. Many of them live under a dollar a day. Um, but anyway, so so we then kind of try to the the, the paper tries to look at what why um, are are hospitals charging patients and and they're sort of. Um, two in the media, you know, you'll see this discuss, I mean, there's anecdotal evidence of out-of-pocket charges and media reports will say, well, it's because these hospitals are total crooks and they're exploiting patients. And um, if you talk to hospitals, you'll, they'll say, no, no, it's because the reimbursement rate, what the government is paying us to provide the service is way too low. And we, it's been impossible to disentangle that in, you know, with, um, for various reasons, but we use this cool sort of policy change to study it. And essentially we, we find that it's a bit of both. There are some, you know, to give you a sense, the, 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 what the government pays hospitals is not based on detailed assessments of what costs are because that just doesn't exist in India the way it does in the US. And so the government has to sort of come up with these rough, to give you an example, an idea, you know, in 2017, when we were doing the study, a vaginal, a basic vaginal delivery, the, the hospital was paid about $50 for it, okay. right? And that's the same, no matter where in the state uh, the hospital is, no matter what kind of patient you get, you get $50 for a basic vaginal delivery. It's, 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 you know, and what we find is that for some hospitals to provide a reasonable quality of care, that those the the, the rates that the government had set were not enough, and that was, yes. and so in order to be able to still go ahead and participate in the program, the hospital was charging patients the remainder in cash, right. and so this the you know when the government increased the chart what it was paying hospitals, the hospitals reduced what they were charging patients in cash. Okay. So that was great. But um, but we, you know, we find different effects in different parts of the state. And we find that in, in for many other hospitals, um, they do, you know, uh, they do seem to simply be charging what they can, they, you know, in, in some markets, particularly um, for more specialized services, uh, there isn't a lot of competition and hospitals really kind of set the terms. And under those conditions, they can charge whatever they want. And um, in that situation, in that case, when the government, you know, pays the hospital more to provide the same service, the hospital just pockets it and keeps charging patients cash. Um, and I think, you know, the sort of, uh, it's a long and complicated paper, but you know the broad. I think the broad takeaway from it um, that these programs are going to need to think a lot harder about going forward is, you know, that the especially when you're contracting the private sector, when you're contracting private hospitals, the way you set, the way you pay them, how much you pay them, how you decide that is really, really important, and as we show, has implications for patient welfare. And it's an extremely complicated thing to study, to determine. And there's a huge literature on it in the US, but not that much in India. And yeah. we're trying to contribute to that. Well, that's, I'm, I'm so glad you are. And this question, you may just say, read the paper and you're, you're entitled to do that. <laughs> but I'm just curious, because I'm guessing that, that one of the reasons to do the study you did for that particular paper is to look if um, 
if um, the, the hospitals start charging less, if then that gender disparity decreases? I mean, that's the immediate thought that comes to my mind. Can you answer that or is that way too simple a question for a complicated topic? No, 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 <laughs> absolutely. And, but this, that is, so it is exactly this. So it, it is, this is when, you know, when we were talking about the gender paper, I mentioned that like, you know, what, what we find, this is exactly what we're exploiting for that as well. So the, it is right. the fact that, you know, the same policy that here we, you know, the, the policy was basically to ch increase payments to hospitals. In this paper, we look at what that does to out-of-pocket charges and understand a little bit about hospital behavior. But when we, given that we see that in many places, this, the, this policy decreased what patients were charged, we then went back to look at, well, what does that do to gender disparity? And that's where we found that it actually seems to widen gender disparity, yeah, okay. even though it increases. So yeah. Back to that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, I don't think we can really do a podcast about health without talking about COVID. Um, <laughs> even though we, we, you know, we, we decided that we started this, this podcast series in, in March when the lockdown first started, you know, to kind of keep us um, you know, in, because we didn't really have a lecture series then and we didn't know what was happening. And so I was like, okay, let's do podcasts. And then, you know, we can kind of talk to our colleagues and put us out there. Um, and then at some point we decided as this was, we're having a lot of fun and people seem to appreciate it. We're just going to go on with it, uh, even though we are now having webinar series and things like that. And we're not going to talk about COVID all the time so that it has yeah. a certain kind of longevity. Um, but I feel COVID also has a lot of longevity. So it always comes into it. Like you can't avoid it. And it's not as if if people listen to a podcast a year later, they're going to be like, what? what? I don't know. What was that? You know, it's going to be relevant <laughs> for a long time. But I right. feel in this particular podcast is, is very relevant. So I was talking to a colleague in uh, in Bhopal um, a few weeks ago, and she told me that uh, the majority of people dying of COVID are victims or the children of victims of the 1984 gas disaster. So it remains incredibly relevant, um, the kind of underlying health conditions that's, that are there and, and that then just continue to uh, work against having good health outcomes. So how has COVID um, impacted your work as your focus shifted because of the pandemic and I mean obviously you can't travel but in terms of how you think about health yeah yeah um well uh so I, you know I, I do have a few paper a couple of papers now that are looking directly um, sort of not at COVID itself but its effects on um other other aspects of healthcare. Mm. um so actually, when when I was first reading, so India had one of the most severe COVID lockdowns in the world, and it right. was announced with four hours notice, and you were basically banned from leaving your house. Right. Most commercial uh, enterprises were shut down, um, public transport, all of that was shut down. And this was all, you know, the health system had no time to prepare because it was literally announced four hours before it went into effect. And I got very worried about what this might have been doing to... Um, what the effects would be on other kinds of care, right? That people still need hospitalization, women are still delivering children, and you know what's what's happening to that. And so, mm -hmm. um, again, sort of Pathleen and I did this um, short paper, basically looking at people, patients who need critical sort of chronic care, um, specifically dialysis. And you, you know, for dialysis, you need to go into the hospital two to four times a week, and and it's 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 life-saving care. If you don't get it, you will um, you have very bad uh, sort of. It really increases morbidity quickly and um, eventually leads to death. And um, 
it's really tragic, but we basically find this really, you know, in the months before the lockdown, you know, mortality is sort of steadily decreasing. And then in May, the, after one complete month of exposure to the lockdown, we see, um, I haven't looked at that paper in a while, but I think it was just a massive, uh, something like 60% uh, increase in mortality amongst these mm -hmm. patients. Um, you know, and when we go on to show, uh, we think, you know, there's this sort of suggestive evidence that this really is because the lockdown, made, this is driven by the fact that the lockdown made it impossible for people to reach the hospital or right. get, and get their dialysis care. And I really think, you know, um, I, you know, the lockdown affected things all over the world, but I think some of this, these sort of side effects could have been averted with better planning before the lockdown was announced and a little, you know, preparing the health system. So that's some, you know, there, there are a couple other things that where we basically directly look at the at COVID itself. But um, in terms of what it, how it um, changes the way I think about health and research and my health systems and things, um, I think, you know, as much as I focus on study the private sector, and I do that in part because it is a big player in India and hasn't been studied that much. But I think one of the things that I um, sort of, that was really um, evident to me during the lockdown was that a strong public health system is really important through things like this, right? Because it's something that, you know, that the government just has a lot more control over it. It's a resource that is available to the government and can be de deployed. Mm -hmm. And um, if there had been no network of sort of public hospitals, I think, you know, it, it's very difficult for the government to um, sort of control what the private sector does, at least in the Indian context, and um, ensure that, you know, that it's handling, not refusing to see COVID patients and things like that. So yeah, right. I mean, there's just a broader thing that, you know, a, a strong basic public health system really can, is important no matter what else is going on with the private sector. Um, but I have to say the, I mean, the other thing more generally, I, you know, uh, I think many of the things that I think about and study in, um, in in the pre-COVID era, um, you know, the, the, those things still apply. It's like, how, how do you make a strong health system? How do you ensure that the health system is serving the most, um, you know, worst off people, uh, the poorest or women, or, you know, um, mm -hmm. how do you get hospitals to provide high quality care? All these things that are, you know, that um, are important in the health system anyway are also important through pandemics. And so on some level, you know, I don't think COVID has like fundamentally changed the way what I will study. Right. Maybe has highlighted some of the issues um, as it has indeed in the United States and everywhere, I think. I think probably even in places where there's very strong public health care, it's, it's still showing a pandemic like this perhaps is still showing up what needs to be thought about more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and just... Yeah, <laughs> that like, you know, the, the coordination sort of this um, kind of thinking about things in the health systems as a health system, you know, where um, that has absorptive capacity that can reassign resources when needed and where needed. Um, you know, that, that I think in India, the, the, especially the private sector is so fragmented, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to sort of adjust in the face of a, adjust it in the face of a pandemic. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for making time for me today. I, I very much enjoyed finding out more about your work and your um, uh, listening to you talk about your research and uh, allowing me to ask the questions 
some of which I had prepared and some of which popped into my head as I was <laughs> listening to you. Um, thank you and, and good luck with all that is ahead of you. No, thanks so much. This was fun. It was, uh, and your questions were very good. <laughs> it was a nice, it was, uh, it was really nice chatting with you and then having a chance to talk about my research. Thank you, Radhika. I want to also thank Sohan Shiva for creating the music for the intro and outro that you have enjoyed and will enjoy again shortly. And also Alina Utraka and Simrat Mataru for doing the post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Chale bhe 